Welcome back to the People Show, coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Good submissions coming into the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. A lot of good names coming out of Winnipeg of people uh, or people players that the people want to see the Canucks try to go after. And I was pitching, not that I want to see the Canucks go after Connor Hellebuck, but where could a Connor Hellebuck end up if the Winnipeg Jets decide to make a move? Let's get into that conversation with uh, Kevin Woodley from In Goal Magazine, In Goal Radio Podcast, and NHL.com. At Kevin is in goal on Twitter as well. Woodley, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Coming to you from Seattle. We're getting ready for game six tonight and pretty uh, excited to sort of see the atmosphere down here again with a chance for uh, the home team. I think a surprising, in the eyes of most, chance to close it out tonight. Hi, it'll be fun uh, to, to watch that one tonight. Uh, so I was talking about Connor Hellebuck. Uh, first, let's start with what happened on the ice. Um why did it go wrong for the Jets? Is it just chalked up to injuries and they couldn't sustain uh, the pressure that Vegas was throwing them and there's only so much Connor Hellebuck to do? Or or, or was there something else for you? Well, I think losing Morrissey kills you, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. that's obviously a big one. And then Shifley up front. And, you know, frankly, not having Ehlers until last night. And then obviously not a, you know, not a completely healthy either. So to ignore the injuries would be a little ignorant. Um, how much the injuries affected winnipeg's ability to uh not just just create at the other end and attack but i mean you know vegas was able to generate the types of chances uh in the final four games of the series actually not even the final four like the first four periods vegas didn't go lateral they weren't generating lateral i could not figure out how much of that is you know the jets aren't giving it to them and how much is it vegas just didn't you know wasn't attempting to do it and you know, as good as Connor Hellebuck is as a goaltender, um, he his numbers fall off considerably if you make him go east-west. Like, Connor Hellebuck is the best straight-line goaltender in the National Hockey League, hands down, no questions asked, bar none. Like, if you come at him in straight lines, he will eat your lunch. And did, I thought, in game one and, and early in game two. You go east-west, and he becomes mortal. As a matter of fact, in a lot of plays, if you go east-west, he, go, he becomes below average by National Hockey League standards, below expected for certain uh, based on the types of shots. So, um, you know, I think that was part of this. And, and, of course, the question becomes how much of that was adjustments by Vegas and how much of that was didn't matter, didn't matter who was on the ice or didn't matter what they were trying to do. You weren't able to stop it because of who you lost to injury. So now moving forward, and Rick Bonus kind of lit up the team last night, and it already brings the the speculation of this era of Winnipeg Jets hockey, while it's been fun, uh, is, is, is coming to an end, basically. And he's a year removed or a year away from hitting unrestricted free agency. He's going to get a big raise. And is Winnipeg in a spot where they're the ones that should be committing that dollar and that term to him, given where they are in their build? If he's going to be on the market – uh, what teams do you think are licking their chops to try to go get them? You know, it's a good it's a good question. Um, I haven't looked at you know uh, you know who needs goaltending. You know, I mean, obviously, if the Leafs choke on a three one series lead, they're probably jumping to the top of that list. 
Especially oh after that, yeah. uh, the game-winning goal that Sam Solnoff gave up, gave up last night. Uh, whether they can afford it or not is another question. But here's the thing, and I'll go back to that original sort of answer on the last time. If you're a team that is looking at Connor Hellebach, you better make sure you're also a team that defends East-West. Because otherwise, you're paying a premium for a goaltender who might not fit in your system. And it's the one right. thing that the Jets have done extremely well in the years where Connors had his best seasons, uh, including the year he won the Vesna, is limit those types and chances. They would give up high danger in straight lines. And, and it would look spectacular at times uh, because it would be in tight, close range, high quality looks, but in straight lines. And the numbers sort of bore it out in terms of, you know, when I looked at ClearSight and I looked at the adjusted numbers and the totals and where specifically the types of chances that they ha- he has his most success on. So if you're going to go pay a premium for him, whether it's in a trade this summer or as an unrestricted free agent next summer, and pro- that probably includes the Jets retaining, if, you know, if he's willing to stay given what's likely ahead for that franchise, um, you better make sure that that's something you can do. Because otherwise you are paying a whole bunch for an asset that will be diminished if it's not something you can achieve as a team defensively. Is that how you defend? Are you able to limit that? Like, you know, the Canucks, for example, when they were missing Thatcher Demko at the start of this season, you could have plugged Connor Hellebuck into that lineup under Bruce Boudreau. And would it, you know, obviously I'm not going to pretend that Connor Hellebuck's going to struggle to the level that we saw um, you know, both Spencer Martin and Colin Delia behind that team struggle because he's a war, you know, I mean, he's a world class goaltender, but he's not bailing you out given the amount of seam passes in East West that they gave up. Like, there, you know, there, I don't want to say there are limits to his power, but it's kind of like the discussion about Vasilevsky uh, in terms of screens and long shots. Every goalie has strengths and weaknesses, and his mm-hmm. over the past number of years. You know, statistically speaking, have become very clear and very evident. And so, if you're going to pay a, pay a premium, you better make sure you've got a team that's going to play to his strengths, rather than thinking he's just a great goaltender. And it doesn't matter if we give up a whole bunch of chances that play to his weaknesses, because I think he'll end up disappointed. You mentioned Andre Vasilevsky. Obviously, a lot has been made about uh, him and and tips and blocker sides uh, since since uh, Derek Lalonde mentioned it on Hockey Night in Canada. And you know, the question I had for you is: Is it a weakness relative to Andre Vasilevsky, or is it a weakness relative to the rest of the league when we're talking about how he deals with screens? Ooh, well phrased, Bick. It's a weakness relative to Andre Vasilevsky. So okay. um, I dug up the numbers on ClearSight. And, yeah, guess who's given up the most screen goals in the National Hockey League over the last five seasons, including playoffs? Andre Vasilevsky. So I could just roll out that stat and be like, headlines, headlines, screaming headlines. No one gives up more on screen than Andre Vasilevsky. But when you look at you, ha- you need more context. Nobody's seen more screenshots than Andre Vasilevsky. And one of the reasons is, hey, nobody's played more, not just in the regular season, but in the playoffs when I look at all those numbers combined. Um, And also, but I think there is some truth, uh, both in terms of eye tests and scouting reports, and and hell, I remember his first playoff series, sort of the way he tracks pucks um, and tries to look over and around traffic was identified as something you could target and go after in my first NHL.com playoff preview before his first playoff series. So if, if... 
if I can see it, I guarantee you NHL goalie coaches are looking for it. And so there, that might be one of the reasons he sees more of those chances. Now, in terms of giving up all those goals, when you look at his adjusted save percentage, sort of get down to a sort of a rate stat, a per chance stat, um, he's actually over, over the last five years close around plus 2%. And it's like, okay, so hold on. He's above expected on these. That's about 19th, out of, 19th or 20th out of 72, 73 goaltenders over that time. There's actually so much data there that it's split into two different data sets. So you've got to sort of uh, average between the two. And, th- and there's the rub. Like, it's not bad. It's above expected. He's outperforming expectations. There are a lot of goalies around the league that would kill to have those numbers. But it's not top three, top five, top ten, which is where Vasilevsky grades out in pretty much every other scoring chance. And so, of course, between the eye test and what you see and the way he, you know, we see it every face-up when he sort of has the eyes wide, but he's looking out of the bottom of his socket, the head's lifted. Like, it's not a great way to track from the point. It's hard to see releases properly if you're trying to look through the bottom of your mask and out of the bottom of your eye socket, and it creates delays biomechanically in terms of moving into pucks and moving into space if you can see it off the release at all. So there are things that, that teams have tried to attack, and they've, they've done it relatively successfully. But as you said, that's relative to the rest of Andre Vasilevsky's powers. And I think it's important to note, like screen deflections are a 30% scoring chance. Mm-hmm. Screenshots from the slot are 40. You know, screenshots off one-timers are like 39%. These are not, I think because of, the association with shots from distance, people are like, oh, like, it's a shot from distance. It's a bad goal. Like, some of these are scoring chances that go more off, get, go in the net more often than breakaways. And the Leafs have been executing them in this series where it's, you know, going into last night, it was 8 on 17 off screenshots for Vasilevsky, which is well below expected, by about, but only by about three and a half goals. Like, still not up to stuff, not good enough, not where he's been traditionally, even on these types of chances. But they're executing them to near perfection, and they're already a really dangerous scoring chance. That second part, I think, gets lost. People associate with things from the point as easy scoring chances. And the reality is most data, public or private, doesn't track this. Like, we don't have a lot of screen data around the league. Like I said, not just publicly, it's not non-existent, but even on the private side, not everybody tracks screen data. ClearSight is one of the few that does. There's six different categories for screens. And those three I mentioned, those are great A. Those are high danger. And I think that gets lost as part of this conversation as well. Yeah, when I started to hear that, and, and it's like, oh, like this is his weakness. And the first thing that jumped to my mind is it, it'd be like saying, well, Michael Jordan's only a 30% three-point shooter. It's like, well, he's fantastic at everything else. Like, if how do you contextualize that into the rest of the playing field? And if Andre Vasilevsky doing it at a league average level or slightly above, then I'm, I'm less concerned about it. He's obviously going to be worse at something out of all the metrics for himself individually, but that doesn't mean it's bad. No, I mean, if you can actually get, and the other thing is they're not easy plays to generate, right? Like yeah. you have to have defensemen who can get it through. You've got to have forwards who have the skill and the willingness. And I think that's a big part of this series. The fact there's no Cernak, the fact they've, you know, Ryan McDonough's not there anymore, the price you have to pay to go to those areas to get those deflections. I'm not saying it's, it's, there's still a price to pay, but it's not what it was with those guys in the lineup, I don't think. And so I think a lot of those things combine, and you're right. Like, at the end of the day, we talk a lot about creating lateral plays and, and strengths and weaknesses. We we're talking about Connor Hellebuck earlier. Like, you actually have a better chance of scoring on Andre Vasilevsky with a screen deflection than you do on a two-on-one where you get the pass across in tight because he's like that plays to his strengths. 
So you're not going to not going to pull up on that two on one, wait at the point and see if you can get a screen tip out of it. But this is just the reality. If you're choosing how to attack him in situations where you get a choice, this is a pretty damn way good way to do it. Um, like I said, because A, it's a good scoring chance in general, and B, he's not quite as good at this as he is at damn near everything else. Talking to Kevin Woodley, as we do every other Friday here on The People Show from InGoal Magazine, InGoal Radio Podcast, and NHL.com. You mentioned you're in Seattle getting ready for Game 6. Uh, Grubauer. Uh, finding his form right now in the playoffs. Now, I always have a bit of a personal struggle watching Philip Grubauer because I'm never sure what you're really going to see, but what's been working for him? Well, power play in particular. Uh, interestingly enough, we just talked about screens. His numbers on screens in this series are off the charts. Um, you know, and, and, I, and I think that, you know, part of that is, uh, you, know, I, you know, I'm talking to people at the Avalanche, like, like they're missing the guys that, that are best at that, right? Like they don't have Landis Gawk. Um, guys who typically are better at taking those screen chances, and Grubauer's seen quite a bit, but making them screen deflections, you know, putting those those deflections into areas that are tougher to stop for a goaltender. So um, the other thing he's been really good is, is just against the Avs power play, as I was mentioning, up until, um, you know, game four here, late in game four, the Avs finally broke the goose egg on him. But up until that point, they, they not only had they not scored, and that's their only one in the series so far, but had they not scored a power play goal against Seattle in the series, they hadn't scored a power play goal against Seattle all season. And Grubauer was in net for all three games in the regular season. And when you watch him against their power play, um, we talk about goalies being, you know, beating plays, being set, being square, once a pass arrives to its destination – He's reading things so well that he's he's ahead of it, especially on their one T options to McKinnon, to McCarr. Um, he, he is so far ahead of those. You, you'd almost think he was cheating. Like so, if we talk about reading the play, this is a book that Philip Grubauer has read before from all his time uh, playing for the Colorado Avalanche. He's playing at a really high level. Only a couple times in the series have you seen him sort of get scrambled and out of control. Um, he just he just looks really clean and crisp in everything he's doing. And listen, maybe some of that is a comfort level against this opponent, but I know a lot of like I'm not going to pretend his first two years in Seattle went well. Last year in particular was really bad, but this year you I think a lot of people look at that 8.99 save percentage and say bad season. He's actually above expected. Um, in the beginning of the year in particular, he was not getting choice starts. They were giving those to Martin Jones. And so whether it was the starts he was getting or the team not playing well in front of him, and there may have been something there, like in terms of last year not going well and a little bit of lost faith, where they just they just didn't play well when he was in the net. He had like a his expected save percentage on the season was eight seventy seven. So as bad as that eight ninety nine looks, he's actually sort of flirting with the top twenty in, in the NHL in his adjusted save percentage in the regular season. So what he's doing in the playoffs may seem extreme compared to that and to it, it is better but it's, it's not as extreme as it maybe looks when you just look at that 899 like he's been better than his raw numbers indicated all season he's taken it to another level here let's see if we can keep can keep it up uh against the Avs for one or maybe two more games and then let's see if he keeps it up against another team where that that level of familiarity and that ability to sort of jump reads um, might not be quite as easy uh, also tonight, uh, not just the Kraken, uh, the Minnesota Wild uh, playing against the Dallas Stars. Uh, Gustafson uh, slated to get the start again. 
going back to what we saw uh, from earlier in the series with their decisions, uh, do you think they made the right move? Yeah, it's funny because I actually, like, listen, would have been a lot easier to say if Marc-Andre Fleury had held up his end of the bargain. He wasn't good, he'd be the first one to tell you. And I understand why people were upset at the time about the decision. The one, you know, Gustafson was the only goalie in the league that had an adjusted save percentage in the regular season that was right there with Linus Allmark. Interestingly enough, in a tiny sample, Akira Schmidt in New Jersey was third. So he's not a quite in a tiny sample. He's not as quite out of nowhere as people may assume. Um, but Marc Andre Fleury played at a similar level for the last couple months of the season. So it's not like you were just throwing a bone to the old guy. Like he played at a really high level for a really long time, right up till his last start of the season, which in retrospect I guess looks like a warning sign. But the other part of the equation that hasn't been talked about, or at least in the discussion I've seen on it, is the fatigue from the five period game to open the series, the double overtime win. If you look, first of all, Gustafson hasn't done that in terms of playing that often that much. Dallas is an incredibly hot rink. I told, I, I, you know, I talked about this earlier this season, how, you know, Demko had a game where he went into LA and lost 19 pounds in a regular season overtime game in a shootout. Imagine what you're losing in Dallas, which is similarly hot. Now later in the year, soft Sorry, 19 ice. pounds in one game? In one game. It happens, Bick. It's not as uncommon as you think, especially in hot buildings and hot barns and hot environments. And Dallas is notorious for being one of the worst. And so I don't know what Gustafson's, you know, how much he lost, but that's not something he's used to. And so when you look at them going away from him as bad as it looked in terms of Fleury not playing well in game two, what'd you get out of Gustafson in game three? You got a really good game. Take a look at Jake Ottinger's numbers in game two. In game three, got away with it in game two because Fleury wasn't good. But his, like, in some ways now in games four and five, Ottinger sort of, he's had time to recover and he's back to himself. And that almost exacerbates what I was talking about. It shows you just how much game one did to him in games two and three because he did not look like the same goaltender. And if you think about it, like, you know, game one, every second day means that from game one to game three, you're playing three games in five days. Well, now add a period and a half to that in Dallas, in the pressure of overtime to start it off. And you've pretty much, you've got close to almost four games of hockey in five days. In any other situation, we'd be like, of course you're not playing the same goalie through all of that. And so I think the fact that Gustafson was so much better in game three than Ottinger was in two or three shows you one of the reasons that that decision was made. And I think here's where it gets difficult. As he's played now three in a row, I think Phil Gustafson's game has fallen off a little bit. I look at game five, there's a play where he goes. I mean, this, one of the reasons this kid was so good this year is he's a technician. Like, he, he's, he's just so good in his movements and in control, and he's rarely, he rarely gets himself sprawling. Well, he makes on a lateral pass to his left, a lateral play to his left and a quick shot, he misses his post. And he ends up falling forward and out of position and the puck goes the other way and it's a tap-in. Or maybe even off of him on the initial save and it's a tap-in on the back door. And that's, hey, that's a double slot line play. It's a difficult play. And maybe he doesn't get there anyways. But to me, him missing his post, like I've watched him now enough that that doesn't happen on the regular. And so as fatigue sets in, those are what you look for in terms of signs that a goalie is no longer on top of his game. And Listen, like Gustafson played at an incredible level, and they still only put him in in 39 games. You know, so he is—he hasn't been a workhorse guy, 
And as much as we think, ah, every second night in the playoffs is plenty of time to rest, you know, I'm not sure fatigue isn't also a factor here. And I think it was a, one of the reasons you didn't see him start game two. And it, you know, again, looking back at it, both at Ottinger's performance and then Gustafson coming off the break, um, I, I think it's, I think it's really easy to argue it was the right decision. The problem was Mark Andre Fleury didn't hold up his end of it. Hey, we got a listener question here from uh, Shooter Tutor Tyler. Uh, do NHL goalies use some form of ear protection to block out the noise? That's a really good question. Um, I'm assuming no, because you'd want to be able to communicate with your. Uh, yeah, I've never heard of anyone doing it. Um, you know, I can tell you, I know at least one goalie that wished he had ear protection in when a teammate took a warm-up shot uh, oh. from a side he wasn't looking and got him flush in the ear hole. And, and actually, because our masks have holes in certain spots, he got him so flush in the ear hole that it that it basically uh, ruptured his eardrum in the warm-up. Um, so he maybe wished he had some ear protection. But no, Tyler, I have never heard of anyone using uh, anything to sort of, uh, you know, protect the ears from, from crowd noise. As you said, Beck, I just think communication with defensemen is so important. Uh, you, you barely hear it. You're never going to hear it on broadcast, especially when the buildings are as loud as they are now. Um, but we know being at rinks, um, you know, when things are quieter in the regular season, how much chatter there is between, you know, defensemen coming back and, and goaltenders and communication. I think the Boston Bruins was they had a little better communication in overtime against uh, against the Panthers the other night. I don't know if that was a physical error by Allmark or more likely a communication error between him and the defenseman that led to the Kachuk's overtime winner. And that's why, you know, communication is way more important than maybe protecting ears from a crowd. And so I've never heard of anyone putting, putting earplugs in or anything like that. Uh, while I look at the, uh, the inbox, people are bewildered uh, at your, your comment that 19 pounds lost. Uh, the, the number I've traditionally heard is somewhere between 8 and 15, given the body type. So to me, like 19 doesn't seem so far-fetched. Uh, for people that are, are trying to figure out why that happens so much, uh, wh- why do goalies lose so much weight in the game? Because we're all a bunch of cheaters who wear too much equipment. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm totally kidding. Because nobody works harder in the game than we do, Bick. And, like, players go to the bench, right? Like, you know, you get a game, you know, and I think I think back to that game that I'm talking about. Like, that's, um, you know, it's a game where there's a lot of shots. Uh, quality wasn't necessarily there, but they were in the zone the whole time. You watch it, watch it go to, like, like anybody that, that, that's bewildered by it. A, like, hot rinks. Um, I've played at Rogers Arena before, which obviously isn't considered a hot rink. Uh, you know, it's not in a hot environment like a Dallas or a Los Angeles. But I remember having real problems with hydration the first time I played there just because the TV lights, right? Like played there in a charity event, and I could not believe how hot it was under all those lights, even without 20,000 fans in there. So I think that plays into it. Uh, and then just watch a goalie on a power play. Watch a goalie against a team where, they're, where the other team's controlling play in the zone. The amount of short, crisp movement. You're just constantly readjusting your position. Move, stop, set, move, stop, set. Like... A power play, you know, I mean, it's just an absolute leg burner. And so it doesn't matter how well-conditioned you are. Um, you're going to drop weight. I think the one that jumps out to me the most is Dan Ellis, who, you know, was, like, very slight as a goaltender. Like, there was not a lot of extra on him to start with. I think he weighed in at 178 uh, to start games. And I remember him telling me there were, there were points in his career and they had to figure out some hydration plans. And, 
Uh, prehydration was key for him. Like he basically came up with a plan to make sure he, like if you start to get dehydrated as a goaltender in a game, you're done. Like you can't catch up. You have to start before the game. He was losing 17 pounds a game and he only weighed 178. Like, like think about that. That's that's, and, and that was on a regular basis for him. So uh, didn't need to be a hot barn. So you get into some of these hot ranks and, and that's certainly, I think it's, that might be the extreme of it, you know, on a super busy night when it's really hot. Um, but it's not uh, it's not as rare as people might think for for goalies to get into that territory. Hey man, you're the best. Uh, have fun at Game Six in Seattle. I will. You know, the only crappy part about it is, Bick, at least for fat old guys like me, is that beer you have after the game puts it all back on right away. <laughs> well, people are wondering how you put it on back as well. So there you go. That's the. Way I, well, it. hey, at the NHL level, at the NHL level, guarantee you IVs. Yeah. guaranteed post-game IVs. I mean, we we heard about it. We saw it with Luongo in the four-overtime game against Dallas. I think that, too, is a lot more common. I've had goalies talk about getting it a lot more regularly than I think the average fan realizes. Hey, man, appreciate it. Uh, we got to run here. Sounds good. Thanks, Vic. That's Kevin Woodley at Kevin is in goal, in goal radio magazine, in goal, oh, sorry, in, in goal radio podcast, in goal magazine, and NHL.com. NHL playoffs on the way. Abbotsford Canucks later today on Sportsnet 650. I'm out next week. Uh, Dom and Josh will have you uh, all of next week. Enjoy it, and we'll see you back on Lottery Day. I'm pumped here on the Home of the Cox Sportsnet 650.